chapter 23 and verse 23. It says that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. And you shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. We come this evening now to the fifth of the feasts of the Lord, the Feast of Trumpets. Now, there's some folks that just come in there. I don't know, Mark. Where's Mark? There's the folks that just come in there. You know, there we go, got them. Um, so we come now to this fifth feast of Israel, the fifth, fifth feast of the Lord, the Feast of Trumpets. And this is the first of the autumnal feasts. Its significance relates to Christ's uh, second advent rather than his uh, first advent. And uh, the autumn feasts picture events that are from our standing yet future. But they still center around Israel and her relationship to the Messiah. Now the interval between the last of the spring feasts, the Feast of Pentecost, and the first of the autumn feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, corresponds to this present church age. So you can see where we are there on the timeline. Passover speaks of crucifixion, uh, of the crucifixion of Christ. The unleavened bread speaks of the burial of Christ, first fruits of his resurrection. Pentecost of the, uh, of the birth of the church and the indwelling of the spirit within God's people. And that's the dawn of the church age. And that's where we are in that section, obviously, that's marked church age. So we're now looking forward to the Feast of uh, Trumpets. And so we're situated between the fourth and the fifth uh, feasts. Now, you'll find that many commentators, when they come to the Feast of Trumpets, uh, will allude to the rapture of the church. The the fact that the the last trump will sound and the dead in Christ uh, shall rise and so on. Uh, And, you know, the danger here is that we superimpose the church into a text that is really got nothing to do with the church. The church is, in the Old Testament context, a mystery yet to be revealed. And so the Jews certainly wouldn't have been getting messages concerning the church in the Old Testament. Israel was God's vehicle for truth in the Old Testament, and the church was far off the horizon as far as the people of Israel was concerned. So the, uh, the idea that the Feast of Trumpets has to somehow relate to the catching away of the saints is actually uh, not in keeping with the context or the whole tenor uh, of the Feasts of the Lord uh, overall. But rather we should understand these feasts relate to God's covenantal truths to the Jew. Uh, to the people of Israel. And so <clears throat> trumpets has something to say, not about the church, uh, but about uh, Israel. Now, there are a number of key factors involved in this feast. First of all, we must think about when it occurred. If you look there in verse 24, it says that it occurs in the seventh month, in the first day of the month. Now, on the Jewish calendar, that's the month Tishri. And uh, it marks the beginning of the Jewish uh, civil year. It's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting day in the traditions of Judaism. They call it Rosh Hashanah, uh, literally head of the year. And they believe that this day marks the anniversary of the creation, that this was the first day in which creation uh, began. And uh, so uh, as such, they believe then that God on that day takes stock of the world. He basically takes inventory of where the world is and where the world is going. And so it's a feud as a time of, uh, of annual judgment by God upon humanity. And in fact, this particular feast day excites a period of self-reflection among Jewish people and initiates a period in which they mourn over their sins. 
It also marks the third occasion when the Jewish people are required to come to Jerusalem for worship. Now there are, of course, seven feasts, uh, but they were marked, if you like, in three clusters. So people would come for Passover and they would often stay for unleavened bread. Uh, then they would come for Pentecost uh, and, they would, and they would go home and then they would come for trumpets and very often they'd stay uh, all the way through the Day of Atonement and up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's basically how these feasts worked in practice uh, with the people of Israel. Still how it works with the people of Israel. If you go over there for Passover, Passover is one day, uh, but they stay for the whole period through to the Feast of First Fruits uh, before they return home. And then uh, 40 days later they'll come back and they'll celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And that's them until September time. And they again descend upon Jerusalem, or ascend to Jerusalem, I should say, and they celebrate the Feast of Trumpets all the way up to the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Trumpets, as I said, was preparatory. It was a a period of time after which they would reflect upon their sins, preparing for the Day of uh, Atonement. And so between the trumpets and atonement, there is this period that is referred to in Hebrew as Yamim Nareim, literally the day of affliction or the day of awe. And it's a time of self-examination in preparation for the day of atonement. So the Feast of Trumpets occurs on the first day of the seventh month Tishri and it encompasses all these things. Now, The second thing I want you to see from Leviticus 23 is that this day is, according to verse 24, a memorial of blowing of trumpets. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Remembrance or the Feast of Memorial. So what does it commemorate? Well, here's the strange thing. Scripture doesn't actually say. You know, in a few weeks' time, we'll be celebrating a day of remembrance, Remembrance Sunday. And we know what we're remembering. We're remembering those who gave their lives in the service of our nation in both world wars and subsequent conflicts. But, you know, here's a day of remembrance and yet you think to yourself, well, what is it they're supposed to be remembering? What is the memorial to? And, uh, you know, when you think about it, all the other feasts have some kind of remembrance element to them. You know, Scripture uh, doesn't tell us what this particular feast commemorates, but Passover remembers the uh, deliverance from the death angel in Exodus. And the unleavened bread remembers the Exodus when they had no time uh, to bake bread, but had to live off that uh, basic form of bread. Uh, First fruits and Pentecost, they commemorate, remember the harvest, the first and latter harvest. But what of the trumpets? What does trumpets commemorate? Well, let's think about this this evening. What trumpets commemorates? Um, if, If trumpets is a memorial, as I say, if it's a feast of remembrance, we've got to ask, well, what does it recall? And since we're not specifically told in this passage, uh, as to what that would be at the initiation of the feast, nor indeed are we told in Numbers 29 where this particular feast is expanded upon and the detail that is given, there must be some means of ascertaining what this feast was about. Now the Hebrew word for uh, memorial in verse 24, that word that's translated memorial is the Hebrew sikaron. And it refers to, re- to recording something from the past with an eye to the future. Recording something from the past with an eye to the future. So sometimes we do that. Uh, sometimes we want to follow a trend. Uh, you know, people right now who are involved in climate change and climate science are doing that. They're recording uh, details today, but they're doing it with an eye to the future. Now, personally, I think that they have made a a lot of mistakes in that respect and in the way they're doing that. But nevertheless, that's what they're doing, okay? They're they're recording things today with an eye to the future. Now, uh, this event, this particular feast, uh, recollects in some ways a past event with a resultant activity in the future, either on man's part or on God's part. Now, one of the best ways of seeing how this operates is by looking at the occasions in scripture when they 
actually celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. And you'll find there's a pattern to this. Let's look in Second Chronicles chapter 5. Second Chronicles chapter 5. Second Chronicles chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 11. This is uh, the occasion in which the first temple was dedicated. The Ark of the Covenant was brought in, and, uh, and there was a whole uh, ceremony dedicated to this moment. And if we look in verse 11 of this chapter, it says, In the midst of this dedication, it came to pass... When the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Haman, of Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests. Notice what they're doing, sounding with trumpets. And it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. Now here we've arrived at this very significant moment in Jewish history. The dedication of their first temple under King Solomon. And I want you to notice uh, earlier in this reading, verse 3, just when this dedication took place. Notice it says in verse 3, Wherefore all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast which was in the seventh month. Now we know that has to be the feast of trumpets because we've just read that they sounded 120 trumpets and that's what they did on this feast day. All of the men assembled themselves together unto the king, unto Solomon, which was in the, in the seventh month. So there are three Feasts that begin at this particular time that occur in the seventh month. We've covered them already. Trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. So which one is in view? Well, as we've seen, it's all, all in all likelihood. Trumpets. Verse 13, it came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one. And we read earlier that there was 120 trumpeters. Now normally there's only two trumpeters. But Solomon was a man for grandeur. You know, he was a king who knew a little bit about pomp and circumstance. And so, you know, for him it wasn't, in the case of, for example, the menorah, uh, which was was the lampstand that lit up the temple. For him, one lampstand wasn't enough. I think he had 10 or 12 possibly, I can't remember. But he had a whole host of lampstands. And the same with trumpeters. Two trumpeters is not enough. He thinks to himself, well, this is a great occasion. I'm a great king. We're worshiping a great lord. Let's not just have two trumpeters. Let's have 120 trumpeters. And everything was bigger and better uh, with Solomon. That was in his nature. So what exactly happened on that day? Well, the construction of the temple was completed. The Ark of the Covenant was placed inside the holy place. Look at verse 7 of chapter 5. And the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into his place to the oracle of the house into the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. And we read at the close of this chapter that God's glory came down and filled the house. The very last line, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. Then as you go into chapter 6, you find that the covenants are renewed. Chapter 6 and verse 11 It says, and in it have I put the ark wherein is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the children of Israel. And he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands. For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long and five cubits broad and three cubits high. And had set it in the midst of the court and upon it he stood. 
and kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward the Lord, uh, toward heaven, and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in the heaven nor in the earth which keepest covenant and showest mercy unto thy servants that walk before thee with all their hearts. So there was a uh, spiritual renewal, if you like. And then in chapter 7 and verse 1, we see that the, uh, that the sacrifices begin. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Verse 4, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And then if you go to chapter 8 and verse 13, you find that they begin to celebrate uh, the feasts covenantally. It says, even after a certain rate every day, offering according to the commandment of Moses on the Sabbaths and on the new moons and on the solemn feasts three times a year, even in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and in the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's your three feasts in which they gather in Jerusalem, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks, that's Pentecost, and then the Feast of, uh, of Tabernacles, uh, sorry, the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement, and Tabernacles. That's the third time they come and celebrate the feast. So you have this pattern there. Now, what we want to do, if we can, is move along the timeline of Scripture about 400 years, and we come to the next great occasion on when. The Feast of Trumpets is mentioned. Ezra chapter 3. If you look in Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. And what we have here is the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, and there's a, there's a push here uh, to have the temple built. And so in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 1, notice what it says. And notice the timing. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. We saw that in the previous passage. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, that's the high priest and the governor of Jerusalem, and his brethren, and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon its bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles. So it tells you what time of year it was. It's the seventh month. It's during this feast period. They're celebrating the three autumnal feasts. As it is written, and offered the dearly burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the day, as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and of every one that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. Now notice when this begins. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Sidon and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. So, what happened? Between the building of the first temple and the second temple, uh, well, obviously the first temple had to go. It was destroyed. It was destroyed in 586 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army besieged Jerusalem and tore that temple uh, to pieces and raided it. And so in the intervening years then, the Jews were in Babylon. Seventy years they spent in exile in Babylon. And that was as a consequence of their own idolatry. Solomon's temple descended into a state of idolatry in which actual idols were moved into the holy place and God's Holy Spirit, the glory of God, moved out of the temple. The temple was abandoned. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. And then it sat there 
a desolate sight until you come to this moment when Ezra and the returning captives come back to Jerusalem and they begin to lay the groundwork and the foundation for the building of a second temple. So their, their longing during this whole period of exile was that they could return to Jerusalem and serve the Lord afresh. Look at Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Now, if you're a child of the 70s as I am, you'll read this psalm and a song will start bouncing about in your head and you'll know what it is as soon as we start reading it. Psalm 137. But I would say just to you, if that's who you are, forget Boney M, okay? This has got nothing to do with Boney M. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Notice what they did. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us, destroyed our temple, left our city desolate, brought us away from our land, required of us mirth. They wanted us to entertain them, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? So in order to keep the covenant of God with God and to serve him by means of his own chosen feasts, the Jews had to, by necessity, be in the land of Israel. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. And let's read verses 13 and 14. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verses 13. It says, Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings. Notice, in every place that thou seest. Not anywhere. But in the place which the Lord shall choose, in one of thy tribes, namely the tribe of Judah, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. So the there, which is stated twice in that verse, there, uh, there, uh, shalt thou that do all that I command thee, uh, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings. Uh, that there is indeed uh, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem from the time of David onward. And yet in Psalm 137, and indeed in the period of captivity, they find themselves in Babylon with their temple lying in ruins, and they are unable to do what God has called upon them to do. So the first two chapters of the book of Ezra uh, really focus upon uh, how God had not forgotten his people. And then they are brought to this point of preparation uh, for a new temple and they remember uh, this day on the Feast of Trumpets. Remember, it's the Feast of Remembrance. It's the, it's the Feast of Beginnings. They believe that's the day that God created the world. So it marks the beginning of something. And so they're laying the foundation for the temple after 70 years of exile. And they said, what day should we celebrate this on? What day should we mark this occasion? And they went with the Feast of Trumpets. And God makes a covenant. He intends for Israel to keep it. So Israel shows how God stirred the heart of their Persian king uh, in Babylon and how he allowed the remnant to return Uh, to uh, Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Look in Ezra again, chapter 3 and verse 1. Notice it says, And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, back in the land, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. And again, verse 6 stipulates precisely which day of the month it was from the first day of the seventh month. Or if you like, on the Feast of Trumpets. On that day, they began to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. So what happened? Remember what happened in the dedication of the first temple? Well, here's a similar thing. The people gather as one nation. They offer sacrifices in the temple or the temple to come. And they renewed their covenantal obligations by observing the feast days. So each time we see the Feast of Trumpets mentioned, we see there's a pattern 
emerging. Now we're going to go yet further along the line of history. Now there are 92 years to the day of Nehemiah. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah, of course, was commissioned to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra focused on the temple. Uh, Nehemiah focused on the walls. And notice there was a revival that occurred right after the walls had been completed. And we read of that in chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street. Notice again, as one man into the street. They come as one nation. That was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe, the very man of whom we've just read, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. Notice when it was, upon the first day of the seventh month. That's the Feast of Trumpets. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand, And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Messiah. And on his right hand, on his left hand, Padiah and Mishael and Malkiah and Hashem and Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshalem. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, that is, he was physically above them. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatiah, Hodijah, Messiah, Kaleta, Azariah, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, uh, Peliah. If, you, if you've got any difficulties with um, reading, this is not the passage for you, is it? And the Levites caused the people to understand the law. And notice the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now, as with Ezra's account, we find that the nation gathered as one man. That's a phrase that's come up again and again. In other words, this is a moment of national celebration. It's a national event. And again, they gathered on the first day of the seventh month, the day of the Feast of Trumpets. And what happened? They sacrificed according to their law. They renewed their covenantal relationship with God. If you were to carry into chapter 9, you would see that. And if you look down to verse 13, they begin to resume the feast, just as they had done on the previous occasions. Verse 13, And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law, And they find written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths or tabernacles in the feast of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities in Jerusalem saying, Go forth onto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths or tabernacles as it is written. Now, here's what I want you to see. Every time in the Old Testament, the first day of the seventh month is mentioned, outside of Leviticus and Numbers, every time it is mentioned, the feast day of trumpets, there is a pattern that emerges. And here's the pattern. The people of Israel gathered and act as one nation. They gather in Jerusalem, in or near to the temple. They renewed their relationship, their covenant relationship with God. They began sacrificing in keeping with the law. And they celebrated from that point on the feasts of the Lord. Now that's how trumpets operated. And that's what trumpets commemorates. But remember, this is a memorial 
that is not speaking of some great event like the Passover or like the Exodus. This is a memorial that is simply making a record of a particular event with a view to a future event. They're keeping, they're writing this down and saying, let's write this down, write down what we did, what happened, who came, when it was, and at some point in the future, this becomes significant. Now, you want to think then about what trumpets conveys. The building of the temple, the return from Babylon, the revival under Nehemiah, are all significant moments in Israelite history. But as I said, they don't compare with the Exodus uh, under Moses or the entry into the Promised Land under Joshua, uh, you know, in which they celebrated, the, which all of which was celebrated in the first four feasts. So it could be that the Feasts of Trumpets has another significant role to play in Israelite history, a role that is yet future. Now turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Now Ezekiel was a priest and a prophet who lived in exile. He lived in Babylon. And his prophecy is given to him during that period in time. And he has a desire, as we've just read in Psalm 137 with the other Jews, that at some point they might go home. Uh, but he knows they're not going to go home until the 70 years is complete. And that's his message basically to the Jewish people. He basically says to them, look, we're here, we're in this land, God has decreed it, we're going to stay here. You may stop pining for Jerusalem and for Israel because this is where we're stuck for 70 years. You might as well settle down, get jobs, build homes, have families and carry on until such a time as God allows us to go back. And so he's, he, he, he has this very, if you like, negative message at the outset of this book that they don't want to hear. Because they're thinking to themselves, well, any day now we'll go back home. And Ezekiel says, you're not going back home. Forget it, it's not happening. And, and so, so he's putting that notion to bed. And it's very negative. But he, there comes a point, and it starts really here in, in Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39, all the way through to chapter 48. And he starts to build a picture of a future day and a brighter day for the nation of Israel. But he's not talking about when they go back under the decree of King Cyrus. He's looking much further down the line and he's seeing to the very end of time when Christ comes and rules and reigns in Jerusalem as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as the Messiah of Israel. And notice what he says here in verse 24. He says, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now I want you to notice some things in this passage we've just read. First of all, notice he speaks about a physical restoration of the people back in the land in verse 24. I will take you out from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. So there's a physical restoration and then there's a spiritual restoration in verse 25 onward where he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, a new heart I will give you, put my spirit uh, within you. Now, what he's teaching us here is this, that there is going to be an initial return to the land of Israel that is but a physical return with no spiritual element to it. They're just going to be brought back into the land. But then after they're brought back into the land, there's a spiritual revival and they are brought to a place of repentance and faith 
and are born again, given a new heart, a clean heart, and, uh, and they're given the Spirit of God to dwell within them. So they must return to the land, first of all, in unbelief, and then later on are changed from a state of unbelief to a state of belief. Look now uh, to chapter 20 for a moment. Chapter 20 of Ezekiel. And let's read verse 40. And notice what the prophet says here. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to people who are captive with him in Babylon at that time of, that he's writing and, and that they're reading and hearing this prophecy. And he says in verse 40, For in mine holy mountain... In the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. There will I accept them, and there will I require your offerings and the firstfruits of your oblations with all your holy things. I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein ye have been scattered, and I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. And you shall know that I am the Lord, when I shall bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for the which I lifted up mine hand to give it to your fathers. And there shall you remember your ways, and all your doings wherein you have been defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves, in your own sight for all your evils that ye have committed. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have wrought with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, not according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Now, here again we have a similar prophecy where the prophet says, there's coming a day when you're going to be brought out of of these countries and brought back to your own land. And there's going to be a change of heart. In the, in the previous passage, he says, I'll give you a clean heart. I'll give you a, a heart of flesh. I'll give you the spirit dwelling within. Now he says, I'm going to bring you to a place where you will loathe your sins. Where you'll reflect upon your past. And you will loathe your sins. Now some people say, well, this has already happened. This happened under Ezra and it happened under Nehemiah when the people came back in various waves back into the land of Israel. The problem with that is that they were based at that point in one country, in Babylon. But notice what verse 41 says here. God says, I will bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries. Not one country, but many countries. Also, Ezra and Nehemiah only returned with a remnant of Israel back to the land. The book of Esther tells the story of those who did not return during that period. It tells the stories of the Jews who remained in Persia and of the, uh, of the persecution under King Ahasuerus and Haman. And so clearly they all hadn't returned. But here's what the Bible says here. If you look down this passage uh, to verse uh, 40, it says, For in mine holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. So there was a partial return under Nehemiah and Ezra. But there is a complete return that is yet to occur. So the prophet and other prophets besides foresaw a day coming when Israel as a nation, as one man, would be regathered in the land. First of all, in unbelief, and that is happening now. It's been happening for almost uh, almost 100 years now. It began on May 14th, 1948, when Israel was recognized in history as a nation in one day. Look in Isaiah chapter 66, if you will. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66, and let's look at verse 8. The prophet asks, Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? 
Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. And so Isaiah says there's coming a day, one single day, one moment in time, when the nation of Israel will be born. And we know historically that happened in 1948. It's unheard of. Israel was nowhere. For 2,000 years they had been dispersed among the Gentile nations. After that uh, Titus had destroyed their temple in 70 AD. After that Hadrian had come along as emperor. No longer allowed them into the precincts of Jerusalem. Scattered them throughout the Roman Empire. The Jews went all over the world. And Israel disappeared from the map just as Hadrian intended. He renames it Palestine. So if you go before 1948 and you look at a map of that region where Israel sits today, it will say Palestine. That was the name. Even if you in your Bible sometimes, you look to the maps at the back, it'll say map of Palestine. But in one day, God brought this nation miraculously into existence and from that day to this and beyond the Jews have been returning to the land now having said that not all the Jews are in the land in fact there's more Jews out of the land right now than in the land about 46 percent of the world's Jews live in Israel the other 54 percent are scattered around the world Some of them are right here in Northern Ireland and and others throughout other nations. All the way from China to South America, you'll you'll find Jewish people. So they're not all back in the land yet. Yet God had promised to restore them to their land. Why would God restore them to their land? Bearing in mind that the dispersal of their nation and the collapse of their capital was a judgment upon them. For the crucifixion of Christ. For dealing with their Messiah in the way that they did. They suffered this body blow to to themselves as a nation. And were scattered. Why would God then bring them back into the land? Why would God even bother with them again? Well because he remembers. He's a God who remembers. What does he remember? He remembers his covenant. Uh, Look in Leviticus chapter 26 with me. Leviticus chapter 26. And notice verse 42. God says, Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember. And I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, while she lieth desolate without them. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity, because even because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, when they be among the heathen, among the Gentiles, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. And, but I will for their sakes remember what? The covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of, he, of the heathen that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Now, when they are finally regathered, what happens? Here's what happens. The feast of trumpets is fulfilled. Look with me in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 10. Now, Zechariah is the penultimate book 
of the Old Testament, the second to the last book, chapter 10 and verse 8. And notice what Zechariah says. This is a wonderful chapter. It speaks about Israel past, present, and future. And in, in regards to their future, verse 8 says, I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have been, uh, as they have increased. Now the word hiss there is an interesting word on two accounts. First of all, it intimates the activity of hiving bees. You think about a beehive. What, is it? what happens with bees? You know, bees go out in the daytime. They look for pollen and all the rest of it. And they, once they're ready, they come back to the hive before the sun goes down. And that's the picture here of this, of this hissing. It's an idea of the, of the bees coming back home. Of the bees returning to their central location. But then secondly, and in its most literal tense, uh, sense, this word indicates a whistling or a piping. Now here's the interesting thing. Middle Eastern shepherds have a little pipe. You know, as I was watching a little bit of uh, the sheepdog competitions the other day. And uh, they're watching them round up the sheep. That's a fascinating thing for somebody from Belfast. It may not mean anything to you, but for me, that's amazing. And Belfast dogs just chase you down the street barking at you. But these dogs are very well disciplined. And what was interesting is the shepherds had a little pipe, a little whistle. And they blew different notes and this sheep dog went different directions and, and drove the sheep into the pen ultimately. Well, in ancient Israel, the shepherd also had a little pipe, but it wasn't for the sake of a dog. It was for the sake of the sheep themselves. And so when he piped a certain tune, those sheep came home. That was it. It was time to stop grazing and it was time to go home. So in, in chapter 10 of Zechariah, at the, out of the outset of this passage, notice in verse 2, one of, the, one of the problems that they had was that they were sheep without a shepherd. If you look at verse 2, for the idols have spoken vanity. That's their idols. The diviners have seen a lie. They have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Now the Lord Jesus comes and remember one of the things that he said about them and said about him in respect to them is that he had compassion upon the people because he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. And that's their state. Even to this day, they are sheep having no shepherd. They're waiting for their Messiah. They're waiting for the King to come. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 24. And we'll wrap it up with this. Matthew chapter 24. And we're into the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24 takes us through the events of the tribulation leading up to the coming of Christ and does so particularly in context with Israel. Again, it's not speaking about the church in this passage. But if you look at verse 29 of the chapter, you get to the end of the tribulation period with the battle of Armageddon, spoken of in verse 28, with the gathering of the eagles, the, the vultures, the, the, uh, the foreign nations. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. Now let's stop there. The tribes of the earth. Is this speaking about the Zulu and the Sutu and the Apache and the Picts and the Celts? That's not what's in view here. This is Matthew's gospel. It's the most Jewish of all gospels. Its purpose is to present Jesus as king of the Jews. So when you see the word earth there, it literally means the land. Then shall all the tribes of the land mourn. Now we're talking about 
Levi, we're talking about Zebulon, we're talking about Asher, we're talking about Benjamin, and so on, the tribes of Israel. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now watch what happens. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect. From where? From the four winds, as one nation, from one end of heaven to the other. And then he gives them the parable of the fig tree. Now this is a very significant moment because what happens is this. As the Lord Jesus is coming, the Jewish people are signified of his coming by the sound of a trumpet calling them to gather in Jerusalem. Where are they to gather at? They're to gather at the temple. If you continued on into the book of Ezekiel, you'll find that he begins to refer to a coming temple, a millennial temple. He talks about how they will there renew their covenant with the Lord and how they will resume sacrificing and how they resume observing the feast days. And in particular, it speaks of the feast of tabernacles. So here's the deal. The day of the feast of trumpets is a day of remembrance, not so much to a, to a specific event in the past, but to a greater event in the future when Jesus comes. And just as the glory of the Lord entered into the Holy of Holies in the days of Solomon, so the glory of the Lord will enter into the temple at the coming of Christ, and he shall sit down upon the Holy of Holies, and the Jewish nation will recognize their sin accept him as their saviour and gather in Jerusalem and worship him. Somebody ought to say amen. <laughs> it's, what a, what a, that, that is just to me amazing. And here's the beautiful thing. You and I are sitting here 2022 and for almost a hundred years God's been calling them back little by little, little by little little by little but there's coming a day when the clouds shall open Christ shall return the trumpet shall blow and the angels shall say to those outside of Israel come on now it's time to go home he's hissing for you like bees returning to their hive you've got to go back to the land and worship your king and celebrate the autumnal feasts atonement and tabernacles in his presence. May God bless those thoughts to your hearts this evening.